Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Morning. You are listening to Tuesday Breakfast with myself, Ayan. Across from me is Ruby. Hello. And George, who we're waiting on, um, she's just running a tiny bit late, but she will be joining us with all her amazing community announcements and everything else that she contributes. <laughs> and a Lauren. Lauren? Where is Lauren? I don't actually know where Lauren is, but... Um, well, I know We are missing is. her. Yes, we are. Well, <laughs> we are missing her and she's recovering from a, um, a long, long weekend. <laughs> so we can't wait to have her back. Yep. Um, and today is just just to let you know if you don't already know it is the 21st of November um, and it is a Tuesday and you are listening to Tuesday Breakfast yes. and um, just so you know it's going to be a very hot day it's going to be 30 today and mostly sunny um, I think there's going to be a few clouds here and there but otherwise you're looking at clear blue skies and a beautiful day so we're getting ready for summer here in Melbourne. <laughs> Darabin City Council is currently undertaking community consultation for the Northcote Aquatic and Recreation Centre, NARC. If you are currently using, have used in the past or don't currently use the centre, we want to hear from you. To provide feedback, please go to yoursaydarabin.com.au forward slash NARC or collect hard copies from NARC Reception or Preston Customer Service Centre. Community consultation closes Sunday, 10th of December. A 3CR supporter. Disability Day 2017, 3CR from 7am to 7pm on Sunday, December the 3rd. Most of the shows you know with lots of surprises chucked in along the way. Go to 3cr.org.au to check out the grid for the day. You'll enjoy it. On 16th of November, a protest was organised by the Public Housing... Uh, no, I do apologise. That's on at 7.20. Um, so on uh, 11th of November, I, myself and uh, Hope and also um, MV, who does In Your Face, a show on 3CR, um, we went to the Geelong Women's Unionists, Unionists Network. Um, it was a one-day conference called Working Women Get Organised. The conference looked at issues affecting all women. One of the workshops that I went to was called Family Violence is a Union Business Workshop. The workshop was by Michelle Jackson. She is the Acting Branch Secretary for the Australian Services Union. So uh, this idea was first raised by the Australian Family and Domestic Violence Clearinghouse who approached the Victorian Trades Hall Council Women's Committee. Um, this area has a really deep connection with paid family violence leave because that clause from, that, from Trades Hall made its way to a meeting at Geelong Trades Hall Council. And it was picked up by an ASU delegate called Sharon, Ro uh, Sharon Rollins, 
Sharon worked for Surf Coast Shire Council and she was also a victim survivor of family violence. So once um, she found out about this clause, um, Sharon really pushed with the support of the ASU to get that clause in the Surf Coast Shire Council Enterprise Agreement. There were a number of other places that were bargaining um, in other parts of the country at the same time, but the Surf Coast Shire Council was the first one to get the clause in and get the agreement approved by the Fair Work Commission. And it's now in over 500 agreements and covers more than 1.6 million workers. And in 2015, ACTU Congress passed a resolution to campaign for paid family violence leave for all workers. Just to go through some of the key aspects to, to the clause, because paid leave is a very important part of the clause, but it's not the only part of the clause. So um, the claim is for paid leave of up to 20 days per year for appointments <clears throat> that workers don't have other leave entitlements for. So there are things like um, if you've got to go and if you've got an appointment with the police, if you need to go to court, if you need to see a lawyer, if you need to move your child children's school, if you need to go and find other accommodation, there are all kinds of appointments and commitments that women have to that women have that um, aren't paid, aren't covered by other leave. We get some employers say, well, they've got sick leave, you know, they've got generous sick leave, why don't they use that? You know, technically, um, you, you're not entitled to use your sick leave to go to court. And potentially, if you did that, use sick leave, went to court, your employer found out, they could take action against you because you weren't sick. Um, other very important aspects of the clause, of course, are confidentiality. Um, women in this situation want to have their confidentiality maintained. They don't want everyone else in the workplace knowing what's going on and they have that right to confidentiality. Uh, no adverse action. So adverse action usually is in the form of disciplinary action or termination of employment. So the clause provides that if women, if their performance or attendance at work is suffering, that there won't be any adverse action taken against them. And it's understandable why in these times, you know, performance and um, and attendance at work would suffer, you know, particularly if, if a woman's had no sleep the night before and that's happening day after day after day. Um, you know, it'd be very hard to maintain your performance at work. It also provides for reasonable adjustments and there's a couple of um, main reasons for these. So they are um, if the woman needs to be protected by, from the perpetrator. Uh, for example, if you work on the front counter at a workplace and the perpetrator is likely to come in and harass you, uh, be able to um, change work location, um, sometimes change your phone number, your email address to stop perpetrators harassing the worker. But there are all other things, other things too, like um, a, a woman may need a temporary um, change in hours of work. Maybe you've had to move house, relocate your children to another school or another form of childcare. 
you may need to start work later, finish earlier, those kinds of things. It also offers support such as trained contact officers within the workplace and um, access to specialist counselling and EAP. And another important aspect is to have an implementation plan because um, how many of you are covered by an enterprise bargaining agreement? Just put your hands up. How many of you have read your enterprise bargaining agreement? <laughs> Can I say proportionally? That would be a lot higher than most people. You know, your normal average worker, when an EBA comes in, everyone goes, well, whoopee, we're getting a pay rise, and don't necessarily know what the other aspects of the agreement are. It's very important that an organisation, once they get this clause in the agreement, that there's some kind of formal launch to acknowledge the clause. And then training, training for managers, um, training for contact officers, and all sorts of things. There's a quite a detailed implementation plan in this document that um, can be followed. So, sorry, I'll just skip ahead to... I'm not very good at doing uh, PowerPoints. And they recommend leave, you can have leave. There's no guaranteed leave, and the EAP provider decides whether you get leave or not. It is. And there is really a big gap in those 78 councils of the best family violence clauses to the worst. So even if you've got a clause in your workplace, it, you might need to still campaign to do some work to improve it. <coughs> Sorry? Employee assistance program. So a lot of big employers have like um, counsellors that they, they can staff can go to. So um, what else can you do though if you don't have an EBA? There are a lot of workers who aren't covered by EBAs and especially people who work in small workplaces, there's no chance of getting an EBA because you just don't have the capacity to organise. A lot of um, social and community services organisations, because they're fully funded by the government, there's no money, so there's no point doing an EBA because you're not going to get much out of it. So there are other avenues for um, campaigning. Um, family violence leave can be put in a workplace policy, and a lot of big organisations, when this leave first come about, and I think there are a number of banks and organisations like that who wouldn't put it in their EBA, but they had a policy. Um, some of the problems with policies are is generally that management just write them and then give them to you and say, here they are, and you don't get to have much input in them, and they're often not legally enforceable. So whereas an EBA entitlement's enforceable, policies generally aren't. Some circumstances they are, and they, um, and they can be changed without consultation. Yeah. Um, the other avenue, and this is the avenue that the ACTU went down last year, uh, the ACTU ran a test case to have family violence leave put in all awards, and um, that case was partially successful in that the Commission has decided that unpaid family violence leave will be put in all awards, but no paid leave. So they wouldn't grant any paid leave. And I think they're still working out the details even of how much unpaid leave and how that will work. 
So the WeWork camp, Wake campaign that Adele spoke about this morning um, that is being run by the ACTU that came out of a campaign from our sister branch of the ASU in New South Wales, that aims to get 10 days paid leave put in the national employment standards. Now, what that means is if you're not covered by an EBA and you're not covered by an award, everyone is covered by the NES. So it would become the legal minimum if, if we're successful in that campaign. So that's an, uh, another avenue where um, we can campaign. If you're just tuning in, you are listening to Tuesday Breakfast on your 8.55 a.m. dial. Um, you heard from Michelle Jackson. Michelle Jackson is the Acting Branch Secretary for the Australian Services Union. Michelle discussed what the family violence paid leave is, why do we need it, and other useful information we will share um, a few links that look at this um, new uh, the proposed policy. And, yeah, so we'll share on our Facebook page and also our 3CR, 3CR website page. And now we will be listening to Kaye um, with her song, Natural Woman. And that was Kayit's Natural Woman. You're listening to 3CR Tuesday Breakfast. Sometimes when you need help most, it can be really hard to speak up. If you need things like food, a place to stay or counselling support, there's no shame when you ask Izzy. AskIzzy.org.au is a website that helps you find what you need now and nearby. It's made for mobile and all searches are anonymous. Plus, there are no data fees if you're on the Telstra network. No shame, just ask Izzy. That's A-S-K-I-Z-Z-Y dot org dot A-U. A 3CR supporter. If you're tuning in, you are listening to 3CR um, uh, Tuesday Breakfast with myself, um, Ayan, and in the studio is also uh, Ruby. Um, <laughs> we're waiting on George. She... Is running a tiny bit late, and Lauren is um, uh, has been caught up with work, but she will be back next week. Um, and now we're going to be listening to some uh, vox pop that I did at a rally. So on 16th of November, a protest was organised by the Public Housing Defence Network outside of Claire Barnes' com- uh, campaign office in Thornbury. The protesters called on Claire Burns, the Labor MP for Northgate, to speak out against the Labor Party's participation in the selling off of public housing to private developers. Claire Burns, who lives in a share house in Northgate, has in the past shown support for public housing. And now let's hear from the protesters. Uh, I'm Elma. I'm from a church organisation that is a neighbour of uh, one of the estates that are involved in this project. I and many people around me are very worried about the way in which this project and previous projects similar to it uh, are really going to have a net result of a loss of public land which is currently reserved for poor people and will be turned into land that is profitable for private owners. We understand it's a, it's a complex set of arrangements, but 
at bottom, we believe that uh, there are much, much better solutions, that in a housing crisis where there are many, many poor people, upwards of 37,000 households, that's not individuals, that's households, on the waiting list for public housing in Victoria... Uh, means that really the housing market is completely out of control in relation to those people. They need to have their rights protected. They need to be able to have access to safe and secure housing, which is guaranteed by a government landlord who understands many of the social problems that have brought them to near homelessness, about the social impact generally on people of uh, getting rid of public housing that's already there and which we as a community own. I believe and many others around me believe that we as a community are responsible for providing quality, secure housing for uh, people who can't afford to house themselves or to ever to enter this ridiculously inflated bias market. Uh, and uh, so this is why we're standing up for our neighbours, for, our, for, the, for our, our tenants around us, but also we're very concerned with the project uh, across the board. Um, so I'm Howard Morosi, I'm with Friends of Public Housing Victoria, Defending Extend Public Housing Australia and the Public Housing Defence Network. The reason I support public housing, well, there are many reasons, three basic reasons which people need to remember. Public housing is different from community housing. Public housing is government-owned and government-managed uh, public housing. It guarantees three things. It guarantees that rent for the tenant is fixed, at 25% of their income and varies according to their income. Secondly, public housing uh, gives tenants security of tenure. That means they have an ongoing lease. Uh, there's no short-term leases. And the third thing is that everyone who's entitled by their income to be in public housing is accepted onto the waiting list. None of those three things is true with the alternative which has been promoted by the Andrews government and governments around Australia, which is community housing. Community housing doesn't guarantee any of those three things. They're the three main reasons why I support public housing. Hello, Ayan. Uh, you, you've asked us to explain uh, some of us why we attended this rally today outside Claire Burns' office, her uh, campaign office here on High Street in Thornbury, and I've attended it because as a newly arrived local resident of Northcote, and a voter in the Saturday's election, by-election, uh, I would not dream of voting for the Labour Party, although I'm a lifelong Labour voter. And I'm saying this because what I've discovered about what's happening at the Walker Street estate absolutely disgusts me. There is increasing inequality in Australia, a loss of harmony between the different levels of society as people fall off the economic wagon. <laughs> Homeless people in the centre of the city, uh, grossly in high rates of increase in inequality of income and wealth, and you have a Labour government that pretends to defend the disadvantaged, <laughs> and they are selling off land which has been, in this case, taken from local residents, taken from a local residential owner and put into the public domain in order to support public housing in the 1950s and now a Labour government is handing this land on this estate and on many other estates back to the private sector 
so that they can make millions out of developing it. Uh, I am disgusted. That's why I came to this rally. And you just heard from um, protesters who were at the Public Housing Defence Network, sorry, a rally that the Public Housing Defence Network organised, and the rally was outside of Claire Burns' campaign office in Thornbury. And, yeah, so the protesters were basically trying to hold Claire Burns accountable because Claire Burns has in the past said that she supports public housing and she herself lives in Share House. And um, that also contradicts with Labor's, the Labor Party's support for the wholesale of public housing to private developers. Thanks, Ayan. I really want to have a, a listen to the rest of that. I only just caught the second half. Yeah, no, my pleasure. Awesome. I'll have it around somewhat. <laughs> Good morning, Melbourne. Sorry I'm a bit late. <laughs> had a bit of a sleep in. We're going to kick it off with some great tunes this morning. I've got a few local female queer bands to play for you. So the first one is Jala, and this song is called Junior Spirit. You are invited to Sampari Exhibition, celebrating West Papuan culture. Sampari, a series of events supporting the West Papuan people's goal for self-determination. Art, discussion, spoken word performance, debate and Melanesian food and culture. Friday, 8th December at 6pm till Sunday, 17th December. ACU Gallery, 26 Brunswick Street, Fitzroy. Go to Sampari Exhibition Facebook or DFAIT West Papua website. Sampari, brought to you by Federal Republic of West Papua Women's Office, a 3CR supporter. always bringing you the latest union news. They're coming after us at the moment. They want to get rid of penalty rates, the big push from businesses. They want to get rid of all the things that you and I have fought for. So there's tens of thousands of jobs gone, contracted out to sham contracting arrangements. On 8.55am and on the web, 3cr.org.au. So now we're going to have a bit of a chat about some of the events going on around uh, Melbourne at the moment, and there's always so much. Um, but first, I just want to flag that Giramondo Publishing is hosting an, a, a conversation and a book launch um, with Miles Franklin, Franklin and award-winning author Alexis Wright about her new book, Tracker, which is a tribute to the visionary Aboriginal leader, Tracker Tilmouth. Um, so Alexis Wright will be taking talking with readings bookseller Chris Dyte about Tracker and about the art of weaving together many voices and histories. Um, and after the conversation, the book launch, the book will be launched by renowned Indigenous activist Jackie Katona. Um, so that is going to be on Monday the 27th of November at 5.30pm um, for a 6pm start at M Pavilion, which is at the Queen Victoria Gardens um, on St Kilda Road. There's also... there's often a lot of great stuff happening at M Pavilion just generally. I was um, there yesterday actually oh, for a picnic. It's so beautiful. And I, I think I know where you're talking about. I've seen that little 
it's like a little colosseum yeah. kind of stage thing. It's so yeah, cute. and every Such year it's something show. like a bit different. Um, so, but yeah, and this year the program looks amazing as always. Um, yeah, and the other thing I just wanted to mention is that so the Emerging Writers Festival has a has a call out. So writers are invited to share um, not only their individual work but also their ideas for the events, for some topics and conversations that they'd want to be seen in the festival. Um, so they really emphasise diversity, inclusivity, and accessibility. Um, you know, they're the core values of the Emerging Writers Festival and. Um, yeah, I think it's really good that, um, you know, people of all different ages from different backgrounds mm-hmm. are putting in submissions so that, you know, our community's really reflected. Um, and so that artist call-out is going to finish, is going to close on the 3rd of December. So if you do have any ideas, if you're an artist out there or just, you know, have something you want to be seen and shown, you know, Get, get it in, get in that application. That sounds awesome. Thanks, Ruby. <laughs> i got a couple more events. This one I'm a bit apprehensive about mentioning because I think it might be sold out. But I would just <laughs> check their Facebook page because it looks like an awesome event. It's called Her Sound, Her Story, and it's a screening celebrating women in Australian music, which will be held on Thursday the 23rd. And it's featuring conversations with Tina Arena, Julia Stone, Mama Kin, Jen Cloa, Moju Juju, Zan Roy, Banoffi, and many more. The next event I have is Cinematheque and Wax Museums, um, Wax Museum Records, sorry, have organised an event called Raving Iran, a raw and exhilarating documentary about Tehran's underground techno scene and the two DJs who defy the Islamic regime, starring Blade and Beard on November 24th at 6.30 at the Wax Museum Records shop on DeGrave Street. Tickets are $15 and can be bought at www.waxmuseumrecords.com.au. And the last event we have here is organised by the United Struggle Project, and it's called The Change, Revolutionary Hip Hop Theatre. Mm. So that's held on Friday and Saturday this week in the Underground Car Park at Hamsworth Street in Collingwood. And it's $10, but it says on the poster, I think this is really nice, it says no one turned away. Mm. That is really nice. Was there also, I think, a protest that you were yes. going to mention? Yes. So this Friday there's the weekly um, protest for um, what's going on in Manus at the yeah. moment at the mm. State Library and it starts at 5.30. Yes. I was there. I was at last Friday's one and it was it was amazing. And I think it's so important to do it because these um, men who are being held in – basically being held as hostages, it's important for them to know there are people in the community who care – and even if the numbers aren't huge, the fact that we're, you know, adding uh, resistance to the conversation is mm. is so important. Yeah. And I think Keeping that we need, momentum. yeah, exactly. Yeah. Keeping the momentum up because I feel like it's so easy to forget, you know, with, you know, the 24-hour news cycle and we're just always being fed new information and then, you know, you just forget that there's a, you know, total yeah. – disasters happening yeah. um right right in your backyard so yeah, yeah it's definitely important to get down there mm. and now we're going to be playing um uh, a recorded audio of a woman's welcome so the um a group of women at the dame phyllis frost center at port phillip prison um will be uh, did a i think it was a welcome to country i'm not too sure but it's part of the Beyond the Bar series, and that series it has been going on for, I think, 16 years now, and it occurs every year during NAIDOC week, 
and it's just basically a way for um, uh, the men and women um, in the prison system, caught up in the prison system, to sort of, you know, share their stories and also um, send well wishes to their family on the outside. Hello, my name is Kathy. I'm a proud wandering woman and I've been blessed with seven children. Kathy Jr., Lillian, Deidre, Lavinia, Kaisha, Paulie and Tyrese, who I send all my love and strength to. A big hello to my mum and dad. Stay strong. Tyrese and I will be home soon. Tyrese is the main man amongst all us women who are in custody. We at the Dame Phyllis Frost Centre would like to welcome you to my country and our community. Today we are beyond the bars, Lord Coast. Hi, my name is Tani. I'd like to say a quick hello to my father, Greg, and my brother, Aaron. I just want to let you know that I love you and I'm thinking of you. Also, I'd like to send a special hello to my beautiful daughter, Michaela. I love you, baby, more than life itself. Hi to all my people out there, especially those behind bars. My name is Tracy. I belong to the Wathorong people in the Ballarat area of Aboriginal Australia. I am a mother of three. I have one daughter and two sons. I have three grandsons. I love them dearly and miss them madly. I am so proud to be Aboriginal. Thank God for my elders, uncles and aunties that have given me the support and the strength to survive this prison journey. Us Indigenous sisters in custody have good contact with our outside people in the community. Our culture is alive and strong in here. We all enjoy Purit on a Monday. Us sisters all get to get involved in all the Indigenous events. We stick together like glue. We love seeing the aunties from the west, western suburbs, the gathering place, as they visit us regularly. A special hello to everyone at the gathering place, my dear friend Bobby and my mate Robert. Leanne, Jackie and Colleen, I love you all so much. Can't wait to be with you all. A little about myself, <laughs> I'm 42. Horoscope and Aries, a bit of a wild child at times, like a loose cannon I guess. It's all good though. I love Harley Davidson's, Fast Holdens and Tattoos. Cool. And before I go, I would like to thank Lisa, she's awesome, and Kutcher, the main man, for giving us chicks this opportunity on air. A special thank you to the beautiful Lynn Colleen for her dedicated endless hours of working with us girls. Thanks, Arnie Lynn. We love you to bits. All take care. Bye from the DPFC. See ya. Hi, my name is Chanel and I'd like to say a quick hello to my family and to let you know I love you and I'm thinking of you. Bye. Hi, I'm Caroline and I'm a Wamba Wamba woman. Today I would like to dedicate this day to my mother, Stephanie, my father, Brian, and my three children, Jaden, Kaimra, and Stephanie. And I would like to say to them, I will come home. And to my brothers and sisters in custody, I would like to dedicate this song to you. Bam Morrison, Days Like This. Stay strong, stay black, and stay beautiful. Yes, and uh, that was um, uh, Women's Welcome. And it was a group of women who were held at the Dame Phyllis Frost Center. It's an old recording. It's a 2004 recording. So I'm not sure what came about. Um, but yeah, so it was just them sort of um, 
letting people back home know that they're okay and just talking about their situation and their dreams and hopes and so on. We've got another track for you now. This one's by another local band called Hexdet. It's a great name for a band. <laughs> and this song's called Job House Death Card. And that was Hextet with Job House Death Cart. Great band. Definitely check them out online. So um, now we're going to have a live interview with Lisa, who is the CEO of the Diversity Council of Australia. Hi, Lisa. How are you going? I'm really well, thanks. How are you? I'm well, thank you. Thank you so much for for being on our program this morning. A pleasure. So can you tell us a bit about the Diversity Council of Australia and the work that you do? Okay, well, we are a non-government, not-for-profit member organisation. We um, do research and develop resources for our members to improve their capability in diversity and inclusion. And when I say diversity and inclusion, we cover all aspects of diversity, such as gender equity, cultural diversity, LGBTIQ+, inclusion, age and generational diversity, Indigenous identity and disability, and we look at all the aspects of that in Australian workplaces. Right, so so when you say resources, what does that mean? Like, What does that look like practically? Um, well, we run a lot of events for members to expose them to thought leaders and case material. We um, do research, and um, all our research evidence-based industry research and we all develop toolkits and guidelines to assist them um, in understanding issues and actioning issues. We also lobby heavily on particular matters, so same-sex marriage, um, postal plebiscite. We, we ran a very um, forthright yes campaign mm. for our members to help them encourage their staff to understand um, the key concepts and how to get people out there voting. And um, and so, so depending on what the issue is, we're there to provide resources and tools to our members to help them get on board and, and build their understanding and their knowledge. Right, so it sounds quite expansive. There's a lot of different things that you that you do there. It is very expansive and we're only a, a small team um, and it's very specialised work. But you tend to find that organisations, once they're on board, say, have been working in the gender equity space for a long time, then switching over to doing inclusion programs for a different group. Um, you know, they have to refine their knowledge and approach in a different way, but the skills are quite similar. Mm-hmm. So um, getting people on board is probably the hardest the hardest part of the, the journey at the very beginning. Right, so... So particularly, you know, I'm interested in the lobbying around the um, the same-sex marriage postal survey. Um, mm. How did that... Yeah, was that quite difficult to be involved in that campaign? How did you go about that? No, I mean, it was a, it, like, it was a universally um, engaged experience for all of the staff at DCA. We're all on the Yes campaign, so it wasn't as though we had to um, have any difficult conversations about our positioning. 
And also the corporate sector has been really progressive in this area and they are amongst the leaders in the community pushing for the yes vote to, um, to prevail. And certainly almost all of the members of DCA have, um, are either privately or publicly um, identify as campaigning for the yes vote. Um, some have abstained for, for certain reasons, especially their tax-funded um, organisations, but the, the challenge, that wasn't the challenge. The challenge was to develop resources for our members that they could viably um, engage with. Because it was a long campaign, it was really exhausting for people involved in it. So how do you keep people engaged for that piece of time? What can individuals do? What can workplaces do? And how can they influence um, their communities so that we can be successful as we have been with the yes vote? And so in terms of resources, what what did that look like in relation to this particular issue? We had um, we created a, a sub-site on our website for our members to access, which presented the case for marriage equality um, and then suggestions for how people can get involved. So um, suggestions for individuals, suggestions for um, having conversations in the workplace, having difficult conversations outside the workplace, where are the best resources you can go to, what if you want to become an active volunteer, what if you want to organise something in your workplace. So it was really practical um, guidelines around helping our member organisations get involved if they wanted to, either as an organisation or to support their staff who were active. And then the third part of that was supporting staff who were being affected by the campaign, and that included a lot of people who identify as LGBTI and um, the negative impact that the campaign was having on them and their families. Yeah, that's, um, that's, that's so important to teach people or provide people with some skills to have those difficult conversations and also to provide that support for people that, that have been affected. So that sounded quite yeah, good. Because, yeah, because what we found was that that organisations were really well-intentioned, but they just didn't know what to do. So having a place to come to that could, you know, support them and say, you know, if you need to have it, if you do have a staff member who's experiencing difficulties, these here are some resources for you. Or um, if you've got, you know, two people disagreeing with um, the argument and they're having a local argument in the workplace, this is how you should try and manage it. And um, if you've got individuals who are really active in the campaign um, but you don't want to come out publicly as an organisation here are some resources for you mm. so it was just a matter of helping navigate quite a complex area which a lot of organisations have never been have never had to sort of address before um, in the workplace but now as our lives and our workplaces are becoming more and more intertwined it's becoming increasingly important for workplaces mm-hmm. to get across some of these things and Lisa, do you think that there is, I'm just wondering if there is a danger for people to fall into complacency with this yes win and not to consider sort of what else needs to be done. And we know that a lot of people in the LGBTQIA community uh, don't want to get married. It's not a high priority for them at all. Um, do you mm-hmm. think that, that there's a danger of becoming complacent now with this win? Um, well, I suppose the danger of complacency is only insofar as where we want change to happen. So we you know, we 
yes, vote prevailed, but if we can place it now around um, over-correcting with religious protections, um, we've got the potential consequence of rolling back our anti-discrimination laws. And we can't go there because we'll regress as a country. So we should not. We should continue to campaign heavily um, to let our local members know that we don't want those. Um, we don't want those anti-discrimination laws to roll back. That we want religious protections restricted only to uh, ministers of religion and religious institutions and the occasions that they preside over. Um, but beyond that, when it comes to our commercial marketplaces, we definitely don't want that. So. You know, being, becoming complacent because we've prevailed in the vote doesn't mean we should accept a watered-down version of a marriage equality um, of, a, of a piece of legislation. So you really have to keep the ante up um, until you've resolved the issue. And then um, I really encourage people to stay engaged in social issues that have an impact on their lives or on the type of future that they want to create for generations that will come, that will follow them and what legacy you want to leave as a society. So um, complacency can be very dangerous because it means that the dominant voice will be heard. And uh, Lisa, um, this is Ayan. I'm also another presenter of Tuesday Breakfast. I, I love the work that you're doing in terms of um, promoting um, diversity. And just a question, within the workplaces, do you also... Um, I believe in, I guess, um, quotas, uh, diversity quotas, um, as something like concrete and tangible? I think that the organisations that have been successful in making progress have all had um, targets, like really, like targets of teeth. Mm. Um, so the difference between targets and quotas, of course, is that organisations set targets. Um, quotas are a mandated... Um, that's done by the government through usually through stock exchanges or um, through other regulatory mechanisms where people their organisations can be penalised mm. if they don't meet those quotas. So they're two very different things. Um, there are I'm in two minds about actually having mandated quotas for the corporate sector. Um, what some of our research has found, for example, is that affirmative action programs for women have tended to benefit women who are cisgendered, um, straight mm. and Anglo-Celtic mm. and so you tend to get a narrow group of women who benefit from those programs and so there's a risk if we impose quotas that we won't get genuine diversity of women um, which is a concern and that people might think that the job's been done but I do think that targets are really, really critical because you need to have something to aim for, you need to have a focus and you need to measure success against a standard and it really helps we call them targets of teeth it mm. really helps organizations if they can link um, remuneration and bonuses and things like that to people's success in achieving particular targets yeah that's so important yeah diversity for everyone and not just those with privilege yeah that's that's incredible that's right yeah yeah So we just have one more question for you, Lisa. Um, uh, what, are, what do you do at the DCA to in, increase or encourage diversity at your organisation? Within our organisation? Yeah. Within it. So we're, 
it's really challenging for us because we're really small. So, um, and we don't want to be tokenistic, but we've managed to achieve quite a lot of diversity. We represent um, a really broad range of groups within our organisation. Even if it doesn't look visible, we we represent. We have an Indigenous representation. We have disability. We have a lot of cultural diversity. Um, we have LGBTI diversity. We have age diversity. Um, we're not too great on gender in that we don't we don't have very many men. But it's very difficult to attract men um, in the not-for-profit sector because we don't pay as well as the corporate sector. And um, and that's been a challenge for us. But we work really hard to try and ensure that we represent all varying diverse groups. And I think the only one where we're struggling the most with is um, trying to attract men to work in the not-for-profit sector um, and work in, the, in this particular area in diversity and inclusion. But we're... Um, we're getting there. We're getting better at that. Mm-hmm. We're very focused on it. But, you know, when you're only recruiting two people a year, it's really hard. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. Well, thank you, Lisa, so much for giving us your time this morning. It's been fantastic. Thank you. It's a pleasure. Thank you. Cheers. Bye. So that was Lisa, who's the CEO from the Diversity Council of Australia. And now we're going to be listening to Tracy Chapman with talking about a revolution. Talking about a revolution. And that was our homegirl, um, Tracy Chapman, with a Talking About a Revolution. Some folks know about it, some don't. Some will but sooner or later, baby, here's a ditty. Say you're gonna have to get right, right down to the real nitty-gritty. Let's get right down to the real nitty-gritty now. One, two, nitty-gritty now, yeah. Boom, nitty-gritty, hoo-wee. Right down to the real nitty-gritty. Oh, I love that Thank song so much. <laughs> yes. Um, if you're just tuning in, you're listening to Tuesday Breakfast um, with the awesome foursome, but there's only three of us here today. <laughs> Myself, Ayan, um, Ruby, and George. Uh, Lauren has um, unfortunately a lot of uh, a lot on her plate as a lawyer. <laughs> yes. She's out there saving the world, making a better place for all of us. Um, so with Alternative news, there are two um, updates that I want to quickly discuss. One is the election results that came in for the inner city suburb of Northgate on Sunday. 
the election was called, um, it was a by-election that was called after Labour MP Fiona Richardson um, sadly passed away from a battle with cancer in August. Um, Lydia Thorpe, who is from the Greens Party, was voted in, mm-hmm. making her the first female Aboriginal MP in Victoria. Mm. Well, Woohoo! So good. I wish we had like one of those audience. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Which is also um, uh, says a lot about where we're at because in 2017, yeah. really. Um, so the second news I want to quickly touch on was um, last week the Royal Commission into the Protection and Detention of Children in the Northern Territory. They delivered their findings. So just quick background information into the Royal Commission. In 2016, a Four Corners report called Australia's Shame. It exposed the widespread abuse of children in youth detention centres across the Northern Territory. The expose was a collection of footages secretly obtained from the um, Dondale Detention Centre as well as former employees coming forward to support the claims of abuse. Um, Dylan Voller was one of the young men at the centre of the investigation. Um, Just a quick warning, um, what I'm going to share is pretty um, alarming. So if it's a bit too much for you, just switch off right now. Um, so Dylan, who was at the time 13 years old, um, there is a footage that shows him hooded and strapped to a chair for two whole hours. So, and another show Dylan stripped naked by correction officers, as well as kids being tear gassed. Um, I haven't seen the docker because it's just too much for me. I can't handle it the way my emotional state is currently set up. <laughs> so uh, Shalina Mask, who is the senior lawyer, senior lawyer at the Human Rights Law Center, um, she's, she also represented many of the children in Dondale, shared the five key recommendations from the report on the HRLC website. Um, the first one was raised raise the age of criminal responsibility to at least 12 years and that's in keeping with international law so apparently at the moment not apparently it's um, a fact there are 10 year olds currently being charged up in northern territories um, 10 year olds Um, yeah so that's um, a a pause moment um, the second recommendation was to close the Dondell Supermax prisons and invest in small home-like facilities close to community. The third is ban solitary confinement beyond 24 hours in all cases. So less than 24 hours is okay for kids? <laughs> it's just cra- it just sounds insane. Yeah, that that's so damaging. I- Keeping someone in solitary confinement for dude's a child for twenty four hours. Haven't they said solitary confinement is like torture yeah. and you know? Oh my god. Um. So the fourth recommendation was cut the number of children caught up in the criminal justice system. Um, as we discussed last week, um, myself and George, um, punitive measures and bail restrictions further c- criminalize young offenders, mm. and that's not helpful at all. And the last recommendation was to strengthen independent oversight of all places of detention. In other words, make sure there are um, uh, independent bodies and mechanisms to um, to be able to, I guess, keep an eye on what's happening. Yeah, so those are the two big news, um, for me at least. 
Well, I hope, yeah, I hope we see that they take up those recommendations and something, yeah, gets, something happens there. Yes. Yeah. I just wanted to say with, um, with Lydia Thorpe, I was reading up on her the other night, and mm. she left school when she was 14. So I think hey. that's pretty cool to see someone, like, you yes. know, killing it and, you know, hasn't had, you know, the, the opportunity to, yeah. to finish their Absolutely. high school education. And the other thing that I, I was particularly struck by was the fact that she comes from a long... Um, matriarchal line of incredible women who have done some amazing things for mm. Aboriginal rights in Australia. Mm. So yes. that that was pretty amazing to re- read about as well. So I just want to talk a little bit about the postal survey um, results from last week. Obviously, at Tuesday Brecky, we're pretty relieved yes. about the outcome. Yeah, and I'm sure a lot of us are very familiar with the stats, but I just wanted to mention a few things that I thought were quite notable. Mm. Um, only 17 of the um, 150 elect- electorates voted no, and 12 of those were in Sydney's west. Mm. So that was quite interesting. Um, however, I think there's been a sort of conflate. Uh, people have conflated um, the sort of the fact that there is a, a lot of people in Sydney's West that have been born overseas, is that mm. being part of the reason for the no vote? Mm. But there's data, the ABS has done data on um, on uh, sort of uh, finding connections between you know, which factors led to the yes or no. And it, and it seems that religious affiliation, not overseas birth, had the closest, th- cl- sorry, closest relationship with the no vote. Mm. Being born overseas had only a slightly positive relationship. Mm. And household income, I thought this was also interesting, was only slightly correlated with yes. So I think it's important to kind of look at those details because I think there's a few Mm. people jumping to conclusions about... Absolutely. And I'm so happy you mentioned that as soon as you started talking, I was like, yes, yes, yes. (laughs) Because I saw so many like tweets that were Mm. just so like bordered on racist elitist Mm. and also like if we think about the people setting out these policies the people deciding these policies are all rich (laughs) you know white men politicians you know so um technically they're the ones who have the final say so even if these even if the communities in the west vote no um they're also just reflecting the narrative that yeah, the people in power set right. out. So right. we need to look at, we need to um, understand it in context and not just lean on racist. Yeah, yeah. that's that blame, you know, like mm. let's just find someone to blame for yeah. the reason why yeah. there was a high no. Don't and it's also important well. to think about where the no campaigners really focused their energy and attention yes. and I mean I don't yeah. know if they were particularly targeting this area. No that's but true that's true I actually oh. heard that um there was a lot of the the no campaign did a lot more in terms of um reaching out to people who who where English was a second mm. language so they um gave out all these pamphlets and things in other languages to, to various houses to to push the no perspective mm. so yeah it's totally mm. true looking at all of these other factors. Yeah yeah, yeah. And it's interesting to know as well um, a lot of a lot of the people from overseas, um, they come from countries where prior to colonization there was a flourishing gay community. Mm, you know, right. the, there was also flourishing um, the the way identity and gender is seen. Um, it wasn't it wasn't binary. That's like a very Western construction. Yeah. Mm. And when colonization came in with missionaries. And they were like, actually, th- this business that you're up to, yeah, it's it's against our God and so on. And then now it's the opposite where we're being accused of being backwards. So, yeah. so just make up your mind, yeah. right? And so. looking at that historical context, when you yeah, you can see how something has mm. evolved. Yeah. Mm-mm. 
side uh, note, sorry. No, that's so <laughs> such an important perspective to look at the issue from. Um, and the other thing about the same-sex marriage postal survey I wanted to mention is that there's $20 million left over in the budget, and many mm. argue that the money should be redirected to mental health support services since they have been under significant strain during the past few months. For example, The Age reported yesterday that the youth support service Reach Out Australia saw a 40% surge in queer folks seeking help. Mm. So this plan is supported by Greens leader Richard Di Natale, um, and legalisation of same-sex marriage is expected to happen in the coming weeks. However, there are tensions, as I'm sure um, many of us know, um, in regard to a bill to allow religious ministers to refuse to mm. perform same-sex marriages. So mm. I guess that's what Lisa was speaking about in terms of not getting complacent mm. with this issue. Mm. I've got a Manus update. The Australian Medical Association has called for the federal government to allow independent doctors and other health experts into Manus Island in order to assist the 400-plus refugees and asylum seekers who remain in the detention centre. So the AMA president, Michael Gannon, said, it is our responsibility as a nation with a strong human rights record to ensure that we look after the health and well-being of these men and provide them with safe and hygienic living conditions. The Guardian has reported that the Papua New Guinean police and immigration officials on Australian orders have entered um, the camp and poisoned the wells with dirt and rubbish, making mm. the water undrinkable. This is so horrendous. A friend of... Oh, sorry, go on. No, you, no I was going to say a friend of mine who's from um, the PNG, she alerted me to just the way the conversation has been framed as mm. though the locals are these like barbarians mm. and not taking into account that Australia is paying the PNG to how to, to, to detain these refugees. And also just the whole stuff with Australia, the way it's dealt with the, the, uh, the PNG community in the past mm. and right now sort of deciding, uh, you know, we'll, you know, we'll decide what's built on your um, land. And I think it's all, it's really important to not, um, stigmatize the community and at the end it's always with the elites the elite png the Mm. elite australians um but yeah that's that's horrifying yeah like but i just don't get that's what i don't get about recommendations and reports and outcries from human rights bodies when nothing is being done yeah like why do we have all these things if i guess maybe to sort of say oh People disagreed in the, you know, I don't, I, I don't know what I'm saying, but it's just. Yeah, well, it definitely just feels like a lot of these organisations mm. exist that are kind of saying, oh, Australia's doing, you know, Austra- Australia's behaving badly. That's bad. Mm. Yeah, then, like, just flagging it. Like, yeah, exactly. Just so you know, we disagree with you what's You can happening. still sign on to our treaties. <laughs> and you- yeah. 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 And just what you mentioned before, Ian, like this idea of trying to frame the uh, PNG or the PNG people in a particular way, mm. it's actually like projecting, like it's the way the Austra- like Australia is behaving. This idea of going in and poisoning water. Yeah. Yeah. How can a state, like a nation state, mm. act in this way? That's that's barbaric. Yes. Very barbaric. Yeah. But it's, yeah, it's so messed up. Um, just, and, and New Zealand, um, from what I've read bits and pieces, New Zealand Prime Minister has offered to take on. Yeah, yes. that's right. Like, we'll take them. Yeah. But that would, I think that the issue is that would sort of, 
mean that the the tough on borders yeah. thing it's like oh they actually could get away into a country mm. Mm. and which which is interesting is that the boats have not stopped coming yes. they've just been turned away yeah so you know this tough approach isn't really working yeah you know? people are still trying to come in and if you don't want people to come in stop bombing their countries stop sending you know um your corporations to um you know um force people to work in horrible conditions and then the communities wanting to flee their countries yeah. and to seek asylum like so yeah so um uh, after this we're going to be hearing an interview from from Sally Goldner who is uh, the media representative from Transgender Victoria yay um and now let's let's listen to some uh, music we've got a few songs um now dama plume with dollar i don't give a fuck cause you're only asking cause they're asking to and that was thalma plume with dollar and we do apologize about the um expletives um yeah but that's an amazing song so let's make an allowance so you're listening to Tuesday Morning Breakfast at 3CR, 855 AM on your dial with Ayan, myself, George and Ruby. And now we're going to have an interview with Sally Goldner, who is the media representative from Transgender Victoria and is also involved with Trans Family and Bisexual Alliance. Hi, Sally. How are you going? Hey, George. Pretty good. Yourself? Pretty good. A bit sleepy, but getting there. <laughs> <laughs> a little will say that. Yeah. It was... A, um, it was um, you know, there was something good about a difficult day that could be yesterday. It was that there was, um, well, three, um, four events on, which I managed to get to three of, four days of reference, which was probably the biggest I can remember, I'll say, in Melbourne, and I'm not sure if there are others in regional Victoria as mm. well. So I think it's good that we were getting that sort of um, awareness going. Yeah, well, let's, let's dive right into it. Can you tell us about um, International Transgender Day of Remem- Remembrance? Yeah, so the background on the day is it started in 1999 after the... Um, we obviously have some difficult topics to talk about here, including um, murder and transphobia, so just giving that warning. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, there was a transphobic hate crime in 1998, the murder of Rita Hester in Massachusetts in the USA, and Gwendolyn Ann Smith decided, well, there should be something that noted that so that it could raise awareness of the issues. So as of 20 November 99 was the first Trans Day of Remembrance to honour those who have lost due to transphobic hate crimes. And whilst the day started out as um, acknowledging outright murders, it has now been extended to acknowledge any death of a trans person resulting from hate. So that could be self-harm and it could also be where someone perhaps didn't get adequate medical care Um mental health or physical health so it does acknowledge um all of um you know that um you know all of those um sort of sources of transphobia Mm -hmm. and and in australia i suppose with with gun laws is it that we might have a less sort of less less trans people being murdered but there are the the impacts of living in a, a transphobic society totally so yeah it's always it's always sort of with mixed feelings, but I say we haven't had a known outright transphobic hate crime for a few years. But um, obviously when there is transphobia out there, and, you know, let's 
you know, mentioned the obvious elephant in the room, what we've seen in the last almost two years with starting with the attack on safe schools and over the last mm. few months, um, mental health has got worse, which it wasn't great to start with, but something that happened, which probably got lost in the news shuffle over the last couple of months, was the release of a report called Trans Pathways by Telethon Youth based in WA and a really um, difficult statistic, but over half of the young people, 14 to 25, who were surveyed in this youth, trans youth survey had, att- had attempted suicide, which is just horrendous. Oh and goodness. previous reports such as um, From Blues to Rainbows and the um, you know, Curtin University research about trans health came up with you know, similar results of how you know, trans people emphasise that word of just, you know, you constantly hear nonsense in the media, you hear, um, you know, day-to-day rejection, struggles changing documents and the whole thing. And naturally, it's just going to run down people's mental health. So, you know, this is just a huge issue and um, it really needs to get some major traction. Yeah. And other things, of course, you know, lack of adequate healthcare generalists and we'll say specialists as well, um, you know, perhaps laws to some extent some of the exemptions to anti-discrimination law we have a positive in australia and we're largely covered but exemptions such as sport or religion can play an issue and the fact that there are apart from new south wales and to some extent the act no ongoing um you know on um, sorry um recurring funding for trans-specific organizations so you know there's not enough support out there and yeah. even though lots of organisations, of course, do good work. Yeah. So, yeah, they're the sort of things that can happen day to day, and that leads to that rundown in mental health. Well, I didn't, I didn't come across that report. I, yeah, that's that's a really high st- statistic. Yeah, it's it's really quite shocking, and I suppose I always put just for contrast in the, uh, um, you know, and it may not sound like it at first. There was a report covering both the Northern Ireland and the Irish Republic in 2014 called Speaking from the Margins, which um, asked about thoughts about suicide, um, so the first level, if you like. And 81% of trans people had had thoughts of suicide Mm pre-transition, but the figure afterwards, 4%. So if we can get more support for people and get people onto being who we need to be in terms of identity and expression... I think we all we all know just how that has proved how much of a difference yes. it can make, and I think you know virtually every trans and gender diverse person would back that up. Once that constant internal struggle is gone, you can have more hope of being yourself. Um, you know, life does move to a somewhat better path. So um, I think that's an you know a really strong indicator of why we need that support and yeah. to get rid of the obstacles and the things that create the worst mental health compared to the general population. Yeah. And Sally, can I ask, I've got, it's kind of a difficult question, um, but I I just wanted to ask, um, why do you think, I'm just, I'm just wondering like, why, why are people so hateful towards the trans community? What, if you try and unpack it, what do you think is the, is the thinking behind some of this sort of discriminatory stuff? Yeah, look, I think that what I call binary or, and including what I call ultra binary beliefs about gender runs deep in people and they create deep emotions, you know, so there's people have been brought up with this, you know, they're just men and women and then take that further, it's, well, you know, all men are blokey blokes and all females are 
feminine girls, and I say that in inverted commas, are very exaggerated, mm. because of course <laughs> it's not true. And so trans people, um, for all the difficulties we just went through a second ago, say, well, we, can, we, will, we need to be ourselves, we'll overcome that, and we live with courage, and maybe, you know, the, just the sight, you know, leads people that their own emotions are challenged. I think that leads to something that we need to do more. We need to, to use the phrase, put the monkey back on the, the shoulder of those who are challenging and say, you have the problem. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think that people, you know, often, sadly, a lot of um, of those, in inverted commas, blokey blokes, are brought up to be told anything female or feminine is, again, in inverted commas, bad. Mm. But I think that also to tackle another elephant in the room being the Sort of so-called trans-exclusionary types of feminists, yeah. you know, maybe they've got some issue with their femininity. And I can understand how that happens in a chauvinistic society, but hey, don't take it out on trans people. That's yes. not on. You know, I have a saying that it's, everyone has stuff and that's okay. Just don't take it out on people who don't give you consent to take it out yeah. on. Yeah. When we look at that, we'd have a, um, if we tried to do that, we'd probably have a better society. So I think that's my, my take on it, that you know, it's other people's problem. Um, to quite a fabulous young trans, trans man, Eric Locke, who once said, I don't have gender dysphoria, society does. <laughs> yeah. And I think that um, we do well to frame it that way. And just, you know, everyone, I always say, people sometimes say to me, well, if there's more than two genders, how many are there? I say, oh, about seven billion, one for everyone. <laughs> because we are all individuals. Yeah, and but... let's just... And it's People it's totally being being nice, and that's the thing. Yeah, yeah, sorry. no, that's okay. It's totally being yeah that idea that it's being projected. You know, rather than people questioning mm. their own gender identity, they project that that hate onto others. Um, we're, we're running out of time, Sally, and I'd love to ask you so many more questions. I just want to squeeze in one more thing very quickly. Um, yeah. What do you think is going to happen in the next 10, 20 years? Do you think that this inc- the increased visib- visibility of the trans community is going to lead to, to changes? Well, yes, I, I think it will. I mean, we probably in the short term do have an issue after what happened, you know, last week was bittersweet for many trans people. Yes, it was great that we got 61.6% yes, but I think that sadly the far right will put their energy even more onto the trans community, sort of like the screams of a dying animal, so to speak. Um, but I think in the end we will break through and now there can be a focus on amongst other issues in the, in the queer community, trans, but also bi and intersex, which in their ways, um, of course, intersex is about body, but it still breaks, you know, challenges that there's just men and women thing in its way and bi people, um, you know, binaries need to be questioned because everything is either or. But I think now there can be a focus on that and we can do the education we need after we get through this. Things can get better. And the thing I want to mention is an amazing thing that happened um, just under two weeks ago, which was the seven new candidates winning office and trans candidates yes. winning office in the US. I, I feel that's at least a line in the sand. It may not be the swallows that make a summer, but at least it's yeah. put a line in the sand and people are going, hang on a second, is this transphobia and general hatred gone too far? And I think um, that that gives us a good sign. And if we can just put a, you know, um, a campaign that just works, you know, obviously it's got to be true to ourselves, but it's, if we can do it in the right way, I think we can get through the short term and get to a longer term where we can see, you know, trans people um, play a part in society for life, as I am, the awesome creativity that we have to mm-hmm. be utilised for the bene- betterment of all. Thank you so much, Sally. I'm, I'm such a big fan. It was such a pleasure to have you on our program this morning.
Oh, look, a pleasure. And, of course, yay for 3CR, um, <laughs> you know, radio for change. <laughs> Thanks, Sally. So you just heard an interview with Sally Goldner, who's the media representative at Transgender Victoria. Um, and if that interview did bring up anything for you, please call Lifeline on one. Th- one three one 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 four. Um, unfortunately, we're going to have to wrap up the show. Um, it's been a great one, um, and we look forward to seeing you all next week again. 